If you would stand, we're going to be reading from 1 Samuel 13 this morning. So we've been walking through and continuing right now with the life of Saul and seeing uh, how he is faring as a king. And we get an important picture of a, of a very challenging trial that he will face this morning. So 1 Samuel 13, I'll be reading verses 2 through 14, but we'll cover all of the text in the sermon. Saul chose 3,000 men of Israel. 2,000 were with Saul in Michmash and the hill country of Bethel, and 1,000 were with Jonathan in Gibeah of Benjamin. The rest of the people he sent home, every man to his tent. Jonathan defeated the garrison of the Philistines that was at Geba, and the Philistines heard of it. And Saul blew the trumpet throughout all the land, saying, Let the Hebrews hear. And all Israel heard it said that Saul had defeated the garrison of the Philistines, and also that Israel had become a stench to the Philistines. And the people were called out to join Saul at Gilgal. And the Philistines mustered to fight with Israel, 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen and troops like the sand on the seashore in multitude. They came up and encamped in Michmash to the east of Bethaven. When the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble, for the people were hard-pressed, the people hid themselves in caves and in holes and in rocks and in tombs and in cisterns. And some Hebrews crossed the fords of the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul was still at Gilgal, and all the people followed him, trembling. He waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. So Saul said, Bring the burnt offering here to me and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. As soon as he had finished the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. And Saul went out to meet him and greet him. Samuel said, What have you done? And Saul said, When I saw that the people were scattering from me, and that you did not come within the days appointed, and that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, I said, Now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. And Samuel said to Saul, You have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God, with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. Please be seated. This is the word of the Lord. Some of you may remember the the children's story. I think it's Alexander and the terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. And in that story, Alexander has a very bad day. Gets gum in his hair, falls in a mud puddle, teacher gets mad at him, his friends desert him, and just everything doesn't go right for him. Saul, in a sense, is having one of those those days, but to the nth degree. People mad at him, friends leaving him, and him having no talent, no resources at his disposal. And on top of that, God expecting something from him that would essentially be impossible Uh, from what we can see. And so that's what we're going to be looking at this morning, is how Saul responds to that. How should we respond to an instance like that? 
And you have an outline in your, um, in your bulletin. And the first thing I want to mention is just verse 1, kind of a side note. You noticed I didn't read verse 1, and there was a reason for that. Some of your Bibles may have uh, a blank, a space there, or some might have an el- little ellipsis. And how do you read an ellipsis without some kind of explanation? And, and the point is this. Some, some believe that there's a, a, a typo, a, 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 an error in translation of the Bible. Now, quick point, the Bible in the original is inerrant, infallible. But as it's been translated through the years, some feel that maybe a scribe somewhere along the, road, uh, along the way typoed uh, a, a 1 to a 21, a 42, something like that. Technical point, takeaway, the Bible's still inerrant, absolutely infallible, but translations later, maybe there's this question about how many years are there. I would say this, the ESV is a good translation here, and it simply says this, Saul lived for one year, then became king, when he had reigned for two years over Israel. So the point would be, one year after he's named the crown prince, up until now, then two years until the kingdom is going to be taken from him. Simple point there. But I didn't want you to think, oh, we just bypassed that one verse. But our takeaway, our application is, the Bible is inerrant, infallible, in the original translation. We can, we can count on that as far as our, our faith. Okay? Now, let's get into the kind of the fun stuff as we go. There are going to be three, three points that we consider in this. And here's our, here's our big idea for Saul. The, the, content, the content of what Saul sees with his eyes, the content of what he sees with his eyes, is going to tend to eclipse what he has heard with his ears. The content of what he sees with his eyes is going to eclipse what he has heard with his ears from God. And we're going to see that in multiple ways. So first point, you know it's been a horrible, terrible, very bad day, or we'll call it how hopeless and helpless can it get when everyone is mad at me. Okay, everyone is mad at me. And that's the first couple verses, two through five. The threats that Saul faces. In this first scene, we see him face many, uh, or the first of the threats, okay? And that's this. Back in chapter 10, verse 7, we'll just mention this connection, which is important. Samuel had told Saul, go attack the Philistines at Gibeah. You need to go and attack them. Saul hadn't done it. He'd been passive, or for whatever reason, he had waited and not attacked the Philistines. Now that's going to take place. So he's finally stepping forward to do that. Except, however, it's actually not Saul. Who did it? Jonathan did it. This is our introduction to Jonathan. Jonathan goes and attacks the Philistines. He whooped them. He took care of uh, the garrison there. And it may have been the case that Saul was kind of standing on the sideline almost watching to see what was happening, like those old Mikey cereal commercials for life. You know, let's see what happens with Mikey. Oh, he ate it. It's okay. Oh, good. So now we can have some. So Saul, maybe he's watching to see what happens with Jonathan. It goes well as far as they they defeat the Philistines. But what's happened is now Jonathan has kind of stirred up the hornet's nest. He's um, thrown a stick at the hornet's nest. Now all the Philistines are mad they're coming after Saul. 
Saul, as a good politician, doesn't have any problem taking credit for it. You know, they say, look what Saul did. He seems to be fine with that. He gets the trumpet and goes throughout Israel, blowing the trumpet. And that was a sign that everybody come forward. There's a war. There's an assembly. You are needed. And he, he says, he refers to the Israelites as Hebrews. Now, Hebrews is more of a negative term, generally. The, the Israelites usually wouldn't refer to themselves as Hebrews. Maybe an enemy nation would do that. So it's kind of like saying, let the Hebrews hear. In other words, look what they're calling us. They're calling us Hebrews. Let's step out uh, and, and fight against them because of that. So Saul's rounding up the people. And then there's another, one other connection to chapter 10 that we need to pay close attention to. In chapter 10, verse 8, Samuel had told Saul, and this is kind of the crux of the chapter, he said, wait for me at Gilgal. Seven days, I'll come, I'll offer the burnt offering. You wait for me. All right, so we see Saul is there now. He's in Gilgal. We don't know how he got there. God sovereignly somehow brings this about. Saul is there. But it's looking like a pretty hopeless situation. Again, all these Philistines coming after him looks pretty hopeless and helpless. All right, so that's our, that's our first part here of what's going on. Quick application, because what I want us to, to do to sense, to feel, is to be in Saul's shoes as far as how hopeless this is going to get for him. So if you just think about this in your own life, where do you turn? What do you do? When enemies are coming against you, when enemies are coming against you, it could be accusations, it could be even some sort of physical attack. And right now, I'm not saying how you specifically deal with that situation as much as to enter into, to, sit, to stand there in Saul's shoes and feel what he was feeling. Everybody is coming against him, and he is dealing with some serious threats. Things are beginning to crumble around him. His eyes are seeing many bad things that are tempting to eclipse what he had heard God's promise to him. The second point that hits Saul here takes place in, at the end of verse 5 up through verse 7. And we're going to say this, basically, all my friends have left me. Okay? Not only are enemies attacking me, but all my friends have left me. The Philistines have ten times as many chariots and twice as many horsemen as the Israelites have each, each person there, plus they have these troops that it says are as numerous as the sand. Okay, so each Israel needs to just take out 12 of those chariots and horsemen and then go fight the, the foot soldiers. And oh yeah, they don't really have any weapons, and we're going to find that out later. Okay, so what does Saul's army do? They're hiding anywhere, everywhere that they can find, under rocks, in holes, anywhere that they can find something. I think I'd probably be inclined to do the same myself. And if you're, if you're one, again, trying to experience what Saul was feeling, if you're one who values loyalty from your friends, you value loyalty, then this could strike home with you. Your closest friends, they're deserting you. Could be because they're scared. Could be because they've lost faith in you. It could be that they doubt you. And it might not even be something that you did wrong. But folks are doubting you, and they're bailing. Right, so we feel, again, a second order of, uh, of Saul's hopelessness, of his helplessness there. 
because he is experiencing losses. So he experienced threat, then he experiences the loss here of these friends. And I was thinking about this for myself on a trivial note with respect to loss and how do I deal with loss, and I quickly realized I don't deal with it well, was just Donna and I were on an anniversary trip just this uh, past week, got back yesterday, so if I've experienced jet lag and kind of zone out, you'll know why. But we were, so we were in Austria, and I thought, oh, I'm going to get some chocolate to bring home to the children. So I got this fancy jug of, of chocolate, and thinking about, oh, this is going to be great, you know, give it to the children here and there, I'll ration it out on their ice cream or whatever. This is my precious, this is my liquid gold, I'm so happy about this. We're packing up for the plane flight to, to, to leave, and Donna said, you better make sure and put that in the uh, storage, you know, the suitcase that's going to be stored under the plane. I gave her the, yeah, 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 I got it, got it, got it. Didn't listen, focused in on my eyes, doing other stuff, didn't listen to her well, Sure enough, I put it in a carry-on bag, so take it up, you know, and they find it when it goes through the scanner. I said, you can't have that. You can either drink that or dispose of it. I thought, I've got a sweet tooth, but even I can't drink that much of that. So, but the loss, I'm experiencing the loss of my precious chocolate bottle. I spent about a half hour, 45 minutes, wrestling through how I was going to get that thing through there. Going back to the ticket desk, but then realizing, okay, I'd have to pay for another bag that's more expensive than the chocolate. I tried sending it through a, a different scan. This is confession. This is just plain sin. I tried sending it through another scanner, hoping that these guys wouldn't notice. Sir, you can't have this. So, but here's the sin in this, my dealing with loss. I spent a half hour, 45 minutes just, just upset about my dumb bottle of chocolate. And then I'm thinking, I'm going senile because Donna told me not to do that. And I don't even remember telling me that. And I'm losing my mind. So losses. I did not deal with that simple loss well, I confess. Third point, okay, that we see here is dealing with threats, dealing with losses. Now, dealing with disappointments when we have no resources, we have no talents. Verses 15 through 23 I didn't read that part, but that's at the end of the chapter. And the point here is this. Saul and Jonathan, those original amount of men they had, they're whittled down to only 600 men. And they don't have any weapons. They have to pay this high price just for a plowshare and an axe. That's all the men have, are these uh, pretty feeble weapons. And they're looking across the ravine, and they can see the Philistines going out in... in, um, raiding parties to the north, the south, the east, causing destruction. So, sitting there, where's Samuel? Where's Samuel? Next day, where's Samuel? He's not coming. Things are falling apart. People are leaving. They have no weapons. They're getting ready to be attacked. All right, so what's, what's our application there? So for fathers, this could strike home for us. For fathers, what do you do Okay, Saul's without resources there. What does a father do when he doesn't feel smart enough to get something done? It could be something simple around the house or something with a job. <clears throat> or maybe you, f- you feel like, I don't have the, the money our family needs for, to put my child in this school or to take the, the children, the family on this vacation or to get my child in this sports program or this 
this uh, drama arts program that they, they need, but I don't have the resources okay, at my disposal. What do you do in that situation? Again, things feeling hopeless, helpless. What do you do? So, the answer for Saul, <clears throat> what did he do? We'll see in a minute. Now, I wanted us to, as best we can, put ourselves in Saul's shoes and feel the hopelessness and helplessness. Now, I remember, I, I realized this. You might be sitting out there and saying, you know what, I can't relate. I don't really have it that bad right now. Things are pretty easy, pretty good. I don't have any of these problems right now. All right, and I'm not complaining. So the, the exhortation, if you're in that group, raise your hand. No, we won't put you on the spot. But be careful. 1 Corinthians says, be careful how you stand, lest you fall. In other words, if you're in a good state right now, give thanks. Give thanks. Don't be arrogant. It's not because your good looks, your skill, your money. God's been gracious to you. You need to have a thankful heart. You don't get to take off the rest of the sermon. You need to make a list right now of the things that you're thankful for. Could be a friend, that you've got a friend who sticks closer than a brother, as the Proverbs say. Give thanks to God for that friend. Tell that friend that you are thankful for them. Don't assume, oh, they know I love them. Tell them specifically. Encourage that friend. But for many of you, you're where Saul is, and then some. You're saying, I'll tell you about threats, disappointments, all those things. I'll, I'll tell you how hopeless and helpless it is. I'm even worse off than Saul is, so you can relate. What would you do in this situation where Saul is right now? Your life, your neck is on the line here. So nowadays, in, 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 in the business world, in technology, you pretty much try to solve every problem by, we'll say, either people, process, or technology. You can pretty much solve a problem in one of those three ways, or putting some of them together. But not Saul in this case. Okay, his people are gone, they're hiding, his process isn't working, I'm waiting for Samuel, where is he, is he coming? And then the technology in there either, he doesn't have any gadget, he's got no weapons that are worthwhile. So Saul does the practical thing. He waited the seven days or close to it, and he needed God's presence, so he did the proverbial, took the bull by the horns, literally, takes the bull or whatever the offering was, offers it. I'll do it. I'll do this. Kings weren't supposed to offer sacrifices. He wasn't supposed to do that, but he figured, I'm going to do it anyway. What would you have done? What would you have done in that situation? When it's that hopeless, that's that helpless, would you have done what Saul did, or would you have done something else? And as you think through that, <clears throat> let's go back in time for, for just a minute. How did you prepare for that decision in that crisis situation? What prepared you for how you make the decision in the crisis? The Bible talks about what we do in the little things will affect how we handle the big things. He's faithful in little, but given much. So we try to prepare our lives for what comes in the future. You can think about being pre-committed to doing the right thing making up my mind, I'm going to have integrity, fidelity, honesty in this situation whenever it comes. And that's a good thing. We need to do that. Homer, in the old, old uh, 
literature wrote of Odysseus. Odysseus on a boat, and the boat is getting ready to go into <clears throat> where the sirens are. Sirens, beautiful, and had a beautiful song, and lure the, the, the ship and the captain and his uh, crew into the rocks. So Odysseus said, I know this is coming. I know it, and I don't want to give in to the temptation. So he told his men to chain him to the mast so that when the siren song came and he pleaded with them to take him over there, they would not, and it worked. His men uh, uh, didn't listen when he called out to take, to take him to the sirens. So Odysseus was pre-committed to doing the right thing ahead of time, and it helped him. But that might not solve all cases because sometimes we don't know what the temptation is going to be. What do we do in that instance? A lot of scientists say this. They say what you do in that crisis situation is going to be determined by your habits. Okay? Best-selling book, The Power of Habit, by Charles Duhigg says this. <clears throat> when there's a challenge that comes about, you're going to be preconditioned and you're just going to do what your habits are. So there's a cue, something comes about, some stressful situation. You have a routine that you take that then takes you over to some reward. Cue, routine, reward. So the cue could be you know, some stressful situation. Your routine is, <clears throat> okay, I, I, I eat something. Why? Because the reward is I feel better. I felt bad here, my routine to eat, then I feel the pleasure of having eaten something good. Okay? So that would be a simple example of how some people might deal with stress. Power of habit says, you've got to change that routine. When there's the cue, the stressful situation, you need to do something different. Call a friend, go for a walk, whatever, that then gives you a similar good feeling in the end. Okay? So there's, there's some secular wisdom in that changing that habit and that response to end up with a better habit problem with that is it doesn't get at the heart of why we're doing what we're doing, and it's kind of self-serving, okay? The biggest part of what is involved here is depending on the Lord, and Psalm 41 talks about having God's Word in relationship with Him drive us in these situations, in these stressful situations. And we're uh, see in a minute... Uh, look at what Saul said in response, what ultimately drove him. So I remind us one more time, Saul allowed the content in front of his eyes to eclipse God's revelation of what he had heard. So Saul offers a sacrifice, okay? Probably even thought, I'm doing the right thing. He goes out to meet Samuel. And Samuel came immediately after he offered that sacrifice. Just like in the garden, with Adam and Eve, they sin, God's there. With Cain and Abel, Cain sins, God's there. Samuel says, what have you done just as God did to them? Saul gives three reasons, three reasons to Samuel for why he disobeyed and lost faith. Okay, in verse 11, uh, Saul gives his reasons, and he says this, When I saw that the people were scattering from me, so he's experiencing losses, and that you did not come within the days appointed, he shifts the blame to Samuel in the midst of that disappointment, and that the Philistines had mustered together 
There's his threat. So he's got these three things uh, facing him. And we need to drive home, what do we do again when we experience those losses as Saul was experiencing experiencing them? Losses can uh, tear us, tear our eyes, lose focus on what God has called us to do and to be. And that can happen here in the church even. So let's think about that with losses. Okay? There can be a time absolutely in the transition of the church where my friends leave. I've got friends who's left the church. And what does that do to us? That hurts. It's hard. What is our response? We're called as a church to continue to what God has called us to do and to be with the four G's, to go, to ground people in the gospel, to grow, I mean, to go, ground, grow, and then to um, be together in ministry. Okay, so we are called to continue to do that and to trust what God has called us to do in the midst of acknowledging, yes, it hurts when when we lose friends. The second thing Saul referred to was a disappointment. uh, Samuel, you disappointed me. You didn't come when you said you were coming. How do we deal with those disappointments? Okay, those hit us all, absolutely. You figured... You know, I'm going to finish college in four years, and it takes five or six or something like that. You figured your child, I've got them, they're going to be walking by one and a half, reading by six, having made this sports team by this level, and it doesn't happen. The program, the process isn't working to what you thought it should be. So you're disappointed. You figured, oh, I'm going to lose five pounds on this plan, I end up gaining ten. You're disappointed. Okay, We allow those disappointments to take our eyes away and we lose sight of God's overall plan for us. We lose sight of the gospel where God is saying, you're my child, however this is as a believer, and my love for you is greater than any of those other things. We, but instead we blame others, we become bitter, and we lose faith. The third thing that uh, Saul called out was he mentioned again all the Philistines coming there So he is basically saying, this is fearful. What do we do when we we face this fear, this hopelessness, this helplessness, and we're fearful? The what ifs. What if this? What if this? And that's another one where I confess. I can live in the what ifs. And being worried, uh, being uh, scared about things like that, and I can lose sight of what I need to be focused upon. The fool blames God and goes his own way. So in the end, I hope, I hope we can see the picture here that this was about as impossible as co- could possibly be the case. This is about as impossible as could be. Saul knew that. Samuel knew that. God knew that. That this is impossible. And that's why... What Saul did to go and do the pragmatic, do it on my own, make this happen thing was foolish. He was called a fool because he didn't follow God's design. Two things on that to keep in mind. Even if Saul's act of disobedience had brought about good results and they'd won the battle, it would have been wrong, and he would have been a fool. 
even if he had done what was right and waited as he was supposed to, and they died, he would have done what was right. And we tend to be pragmatic and practical and think about the end, and that justifies the means. God says, no, that would be a fool. Do what I say. Be in relationship with me. Church universal around the world handles that better. Persecuted church, many times they're faithful. They do what God's called them to do. They die as martyrs because they're doing what God calls them to and they're not being fools. So how foolish it is to think that trusting and obeying God is supposed to be easy. It's simple, but it's not easy. Simple doesn't mean easy. Sometimes I think of that as might call the open door or open window fallacy where we think if this is going to work, God's going to open these 12 doors, boom, 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 it's going to be clear-cut piece of cake, and I will know that was God's will, A to Z. Simple question would be here. So many of the families in here have done such a good thing with adoption. How many of you would have continued with your adoption when it wasn't so easy? A number of you had to beat down doors, crawl through windows in order to reach that good thing that God had called you to. So two things left to notice in the passage. A burnt offering and a king. A burnt offering and a king. With respect to the burnt offering, <clears throat> in, uh, in, in Salzburg, uh, in, in Austria, there's a massive uh, fortress there. Okay, it goes back to even before the medieval time period. But the, the nation, or, or the people in the fort were under siege. They were under siege. Enemy outside the forts has them trapped. They're stuck. They're running out of food and water. They're down to their last bull. And with that bull, many of the men are saying, I see with my eyes, there's my last meal. We're going to kill the bull, eat it, hope to make it a little bit longer. Somebody says, no, 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 no. Don't do what we see right there. Listen to my plan. They take the bull, they put it up, have it walk along the, the, the top wall of the tower. <clears throat> Walks along up there. They bring it down. They paint that black bull white. Walk it along the tower, uh, the, the wall in the other direction. The, the enemy outside sees the bull, or bulls, as they say. Oh, they got lots of provisions they're good for a long time. We're leaving. <clears throat> the people are rescued in there. Through that bull, at the right time, the right place, in the right way. What Saul did was not in the right way what he did with the bull. And because of that, passage says in verse 14... Verse 14 has a key verse. It says, The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. Now, often we hear that and we think, Oh, yes, that's David. David had a heart for God. Yes, he did. He did have a heart for God. But this is saying the flip. This is saying God had a heart for the next king. God had a heart for David. And God had a heart for that king to come, who was initially David, but then we know who the king to come was, and that was Christ. 
That's the second king. That's the Saul who ended up succeeding. Ultimately, that was Israel's hope, and that's our hope. Christ, in a sense, is a second Saul here. Christ suffered the same lack of resources. He didn't have weapons like the Israelites. His friends deserted him. The closest 12, gone. Peter, who says he'll never leave him, deserts him. Judas effectively stabs him in the back. Jesus had threats, as both Romans and Jews were his enemies. But rather, he holds up his arms, lives by what he hears, by his relationship, his relationship with the Father, and gives his life for us who struggle so often by what we see eclipsing what we've heard from God and our relationship with Him. So Christ, as that second king, is clearly, clearly our hope in whom we must rest on. Would you pray with me? Father, we know this is not an easy word. You lay out for us here, for Saul, what was, from human standard, impossible, impossible to do, to face that fear, that threat, that disappointment, and to still keep the faith and rely on you. And we, we know that many of us struggle in the same way, maybe not with all three of those, but at least one or two. And Lord, we need your grace, we need your help to trust you, rely upon you, and rely upon our King Jesus, who succeeded on our behalf. And Jesus, we thank you for that, we praise you for that, and we worship you because of that. In your name we pray, amen. Amen. Please stand as we worship our Father.